Hello again, this is Derek Duncan with the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 38, and today I'm speaking with architect and designer Bruce Hepner. Bruce Hepner is one of the most respected restoration architects in the business. He consults and does restoration and remodel work for a roster of dozens of enviable clubs with courses designed by Golden Age luminaries like C.B. McDonald, Seth Rayner, Walter Travis, Willie Park Jr., Harry Colt, and most prominently, Donald Ross. He began his career in 1990 working for Ron Force, Feed the Ball episode 31, if you will, in the budding early years of the restoration movement, and later went to work for Tom Doak in Renaissance Golf Design, where he became a shaper, lead associate, and eventually vice president. With Renaissance, Hepner worked on some of the most storied projects in modern golf architecture, including Rock Creek Cattle Company in Montana and Pacific Dunes and Old McDonald at Bandon Dunes. As lead associate there, he organized and oversaw construction of Ballyneal, Cape Kidnappers in New Zealand, Streamsong's Blue Course, and a number of others. In 2010, he left Doak to open his own company, though now, with so many clients and work for the foreseeable future, he prefers to keep a relatively low profile. Considering his long and vast expertise restoring some of America's most classic old courses, and his contributions helping build many of our best contemporary courses, I've been eager to have him on the podcast for a while. I first reached out to him over the summer, and we set a tentative date for the podcast. Then circumstances intervened. About a week before we were scheduled to record, Hepner was at a project in Jacksonville, Timaquana Country Club, where one of the guys from No Laying Up plays. The two crossed paths there, and Solly asked Bruce to sit down for a chat, which became kind of an impromptu podcast. That's No Laying Up episode 160, which is really good. Solly did a great job talking to Bruce, and I encourage you all to download it if you haven't heard it yet. Afterward, Bruce and I decided to postpone this discussion for a little while and let things breathe before we finally had our own talk. So even though I wasn't happy getting scooped by No Laying Up, in the end I think it works out nicely for everyone. You get to hear even more from Bruce, and he and I were able to venture into some new territory and go pretty deep into a variety of topics. With all that said, this was one of the most satisfying episodes I've done. I couldn't be more pleased to bring you this discussion between me and Bruce Hepner. Yeah, glad we finally could hook up. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm excited about this. After uh, it, it seems like we've been setting this up for you know months, which we have. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's kind of nice that uh, after a busy fall, it's like all right, now I can finally sit down and chat with somebody. Right, right. So, do you typically slow down this time of year when it, uh, you know you're in Northern Michigan, so you're not working? Yeah, up there. generally, you know, I was at Broadmoor Country Club in Indianapolis yesterday, you know, trying to get a bunker job going, but. Um, Generally, I uh, you know I work in the fall and then the spring, and um, you know it's just how the construction schedule of rest- restoration or remodeling goes. Last year, I was pretty lucky. I had uh, Tim McQuan, a country club in Jacksonville. Uh, Hurricane Irma kind of pushed that schedule up, so we started that. You know, kind of destroyed the place, so we were able to start that in November. So I spent last winter down in Jacksonville, which was really cool. Uh, but now it's back to winter, back to Michigan. Are you are you all finished at Timaquana? Uh, we got lots of little things to do there, uh, but the bunkers are done. The mowing patterns are done. We just went back to summer and did a few teas. Um, the next phases are more agronomic, uh, rebuilding the greens or regrassing the greens and the surrounds, uh, things like that, drainage. But most of the architecture is done. Uh, the trees, we've got most of the trees out. 
and we're working on the native sandy native areas. You know, the place was a jungle when we got there, and we've opened up all the understory and opened up areas and opened up the you know the exist the, the exist the indigenous sand areas. So we're kind of um, playing with making them look native without trying too hard, just trying to make it look indigenous. Right. I remember in the late '90s when Bobby Weed did a, yep. a restoration. I don't know. I don't think it was a like a authentic restoration based on plans, but it, no. what, I think what he called like a sympathetic restoration, but it brought yep. out a lot of character in the golf course. But what what's happened since then? You talk about the undergrowth. Was that just the club not? I don't just yeah, I don't mean to put Florida. it on them, but like what what had happened in the intervening years? Uh, basically, Florida took over. You know, Florida grows twenty you know twenty four hours a day a day during sixty five days a year. So the growth, you know, it, the corridors in between the holes were pine trees, and then the, the palmettos started coming in, and just you know, it was just a jungle under there. You know, it had nothing to do with the golf course. It was just uh, you know the 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 rough areas in the woods just uh, had never been kept at bay and it just turned into, you know, a dense forest basically. So we've, we've taken it all out and it's just open. It's amazing. The, the vistas you have now across the golf course, we've basically just taken out all the, all the underbrush, anything. Uh, we've taken a lot of trees and you can see from hole to hole. It's amazing. You know, the place is breathing, the winds circulating through the product. Uh, it's pretty cool. Right, right. So when you do a project like that, and it's it's a historic club, but it, I don't know that the original Ross ideas were ever recovered. And you're also, uh, you're speaking to the club and finding out what they want to do. So, and, and it had been restored not that long ago, 20 years or so. so yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby basically, I think what, what Bobby did more than anything, he drained the place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, it was pretty flat site and it was, it was awful drainage and the, I think the sand had, it kind of choked up. So Bobby basically just shaped the heck out of the fairways, you know, catch basins, drainage, you know, kind of the dye thing and really right. rumpled the fairways, which is really cool. He did a great job. And then the bunkers they did, um, you know, Robert Trent Jones had done, redone a lot of the bunkering back, I think in the fifties. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of Ross there. The routing was there. I think a lot of the greens were still there, but the bunkers have been changed a bit by Jones. So I think what Bobby did was re- remodel what was existing, uh, whether they were Ross or Jones. And they didn't necessarily have a Ross f- feel to them. They were, you know, kind of sand was flared up, some odd shaping, but it had, most of the shaping was, was more uh, geared towards uh, functionality of the drainage, keeping the water out of the bunkers and things like that. So when I came through, they wanted to try and get it back to feel like a Ross course again. So we did a lot of mowing. I rebuilt, shifted some bunkers around, rebuilt them, had some old aerial photos that we looked at uh, just to get it the sense of that, oh, this is a Ross course, not a, a remodeled golf course. Right. So were you, what, did you have specific Ross courses in mind when you're thinking about how to shape on this pretty flat property? Other things that you've seen, you know, Ross had different styles depending on the topography yeah. in different parts of the country. What were you, what were, yeah. what thoughts did you have in your mind? Um, it was mostly, you know, they, it, it, there wasn't a lot of topography. So it was a basically cut and fill type of bunker where you cut, you know, cut the, 
the old Scott style, you know, you had a, a mule and you dug a hole and you plop the dirt behind it and build a berm, undulating berm behind it, yeah. you know, and that was, that's what defined the bunker, just old school, all in place. So, uh, you know, with mini excavators, we can replicate that kind of stuff and have a lot of characters. So I just went in and a lot of time I, I, I lowered the bunkers, lowered the front edge. You couldn't see into the bunkers. They were trying to, uh, you know, some of the fairy shaping prohibited you from actually seeing in the bunkers. So I lowered the front edges put character back to the the berms behind the bunkers and then and flared up just enough sand that you could see it. You could just get a glimpse that there was some sand. So it's pretty much flattish kind of lower flash bunkers with the old style berming behind it. Just classic old, uh, you know, I was at Broadmoor yesterday. That, that's what it looks like. It's flat site and cut and fill bunkers, just old classic ones. Yeah. You see that all, all over Florida. Ross is up and down the coast of Florida, just yeah. on those yeah. terrible sites. Yeah. You know, and the, and so there was some depth to the bunkers. You know, the green sites were typically built up, you know, up on fill pads. So, you know, some of the green side bunkers were, uh, have some depth to it. But most of them, you know, the character was built by the berms behind it, you know, three to four feet high. Right. Just classic stuff. Uh-huh. I had Ian Andrew on the podcast last spring. And one of the questions oh, I asked him was, I love him. yeah, and well, I, you'll, you'll like this because I asked him who he thought was maybe the most underappreciated or non best non-publicized architect. And he said it was you. He said Bruce Hepner. Ah, um, <laughs> and it, it, since you and I have been talking, you know, you kind of indicated to me that you like to keep a, a low profile, but you've yeah. been you've been outed a little bit lately, you know, with the, the No Laying Up podcast. Which, which took place at Timaquana, and now you're yeah. speaking to me, and you got a mention in, like, I think it was last month's Golf Digest as one of the yeah. five best restoration uh, guys in the business for your, you know, then and they mentioned your work at Piping Rock. So what are you going to do with this newfound fame? Are you going to play off it and, and, and roll with it, or are you going to go try to get back into hiding? <laughs> How does this feel? <laughs> um, I, as all my friends and my clients know, I'm a pretty low-key guy, and you know, I don't need any of that stuff, I've you know. I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin. So, you know, and, and I don't need, it's nice to get, you know, it's mostly what I've liked about that kind of publicity is for my clients it kind of validates me in their eyes all of a sudden, and they're more proud of it than me. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to keep doing, I'm booked through like 2020 and I don't need a whole lot of clients. So I don't need to be out there. Um, you know, there's enough, there's enough talking heads out there right now. Um, there's not much more to add <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. That's not true. I think people, people would like to get to know you better. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see, right? Uh, going back to, you know, the Tim Aquana thing brings up an interesting point that I wanted to get to is, you know, you're, you're pretty much sitting right in the restoration world right now. I'm sure you, yeah. you would take a new, con- new construction project if something great came along. But right now, you know, you're working primarily with older historic clubs and doing renovations and, and remodels and restorations. And it seems like that's kind of a bit of a parlor game from where I'm looking. You know, there's so many historic clubs out there. And then there's there's a, a fairly sizable group of architects like yourself who specialize in this or who are getting the bulk of their work uh, yeah. from these from this type this type of, of renovation and remodel genre. How does that work when you finding new clubs? I know you've had a lot of clients that you've had for a long time, but at Tim Aquana, for instance, you know, that was somebody else did it and then they brought you in. How do clubs decide when to make a switch or, or who to hire in the first place? I don't know. It's always a mystery to me how, you know, that's when, when, when I get called by a club, I'm like, who else are you talking to? Right. That, and then I can kind of gauge, you know, I had a club last week and they had Keith Foster, uh, Drew Rogers, 
Andy Green. I'm like, good. You got, you know, all right. I'm in, I'm in the right club, you know, <laughs> but you know, some clubs you're like, I've never heard of that guy or it's some really young guy, you know, and I'm, I don't know how they get their names. You know, my biggest thing with clubs is when you're interviewing, I always tell them, you know, do your homework. You know, it, it's architecture still is a sales job. You know, Robert Trent Jones senior was the greatest salesman of all. And, you know, it's still selling, but, you know, you still have to do the work at the end. And I always tell clients, do your homework on me, call all my references or call any club I work at and make sure you call all those guys references too. I just don't think clubs do enough homework to get the right fit to their place, um, the right personality, timetable and like that. So um, I don't know how they get their names. I know the Down Ross Society goes around touting that, you know, Hey, we, we can tell you who to hire, but I don't think that's necessarily good. Yeah. Does that bother you when you hear that's out there? There's that kind of consulting and insider game being played. Yeah. And that's, but that's in any business, you know, I still think good work sells. And if you keep, your know, I, I always tell young guy, young architects that I, that I know, and I ask advice, I go, just do good work. Keep your nose down. Don't have any bad client, any bad jobs and you'll work forever. You know, and also don't get greedy. Don't get too busy where you can't service your clients. You know, I've been pretty lucky because I did the consultant. You know, I've been doing consulting, you know, even when I worked with Ron Forrest way back when and all through my tenure with Tom Doak. Um, I've always done this and I've never had the pressure to go have to find work because we always had a day job building Pacific Dunes or Bailey Neal. Yeah. So it was pretty good. And, uh, you know, it's kind of rolled into my career now that I've been on my own for eight years. I haven't had to really go out and find work and, and be desperate to find it. But, you know, you, you still have to, you can't overdo yourself because that's what gets back in what, that's what haunts you. And I'm getting a lot of calls now where architect A doesn't return their phone call. You know, he's really good. We like him, but they're not calling. Uh, they're not servicing us. You know, and then I call the guy. I'm like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is the good business we're in. Don't screw it up. You don't take on too many clients that you can't service. Is that common courtesy amongst your your peers is if you're going to take a job uh, at some place where somebody else has been consulting for many years that you call them up and say, this is what's going on? Or do you just, you know, well, yeah, do people I just do. take the job when they're offered it? And not uh, it, it depends on your character. I do. You know, I, first of all, I, I asked, I asked the club, I, you know, before they even call me or if I know they're going to call me, I'll do a bunch of research on the club. Who's done, who's worked there since the original days. And, you know, I work at Musquamica club, club in Rhode Island. I'm the 13th architecture architect for record there. So, you know, you kind of go through who's all, who's all been there. And, um, when they do call, I'll talk to them. I'm like, all right. I know so-and-so has been your consultant. What's going on there? You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to poach anybody's job and I don't want anybody poaching my work. And then I, you know, if they have a falling out, I go, well, did you tell them you have to call them and fire them? You know, you have to man up and do it the right thing first before I'm even interested in talking to you. Um, not everybody does that, but that's, you know, I guess that's how, my 92 year old dad raised me, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, know? no, that's good. I mean, there's plenty of work out there, and there's, I still think there should be a lot of ethics, and there isn't, but there should be good ethics in, the, in, in our profession. And, 
you know, in 2008, we basically, you know, when the work, when the business kind of went in the tanks and flushed a lot of, a lot of guys out and the people still in the business were ones that did good work and had solid work and had solid clients. And it flushed a lot of people who had new construction work into the yeah. restoration field. Yeah, it got crowded all the time. So that must, have, that must have changed things a little bit because, you know, you as you just mentioned, you and and, and with Tom and, and on your own with Ron had been doing restoration and, and renovation work since the, you know, 1990. Yeah. And it's it's okay. You know, it's as long as they're good, you know, there's a lot, especially there's a lot of remodeling work and restoration work now. As long as they do their homework and they do a good work, I don't care. You know, I, I don't like guys that are just fly my night haven't done their homework. You know, I've been studying this for 30 years, you know, and study, you know, when you work for Tom or Ron, we're out studying, we're going visiting golf courses and studying them and knowing our craft. And if, if we're working on a Ross course, we better know our stuff. We, you know, we're not, I'm not a Ross expert, but I've seen it enough where I'm more knowledgeable than most people. You know? Is there such uh, a thing as a Ross expert? No. No, that's that's the one about it. That's what bothers me the most is like, oh, he's a, he's a Ross expert. I'm like, well, if, he, if he's a Ross expert, he hasn't seen every course because Ross was such a he was, he was so diverse of an architect. He he you know every site was different, every routing was different, melded to the site. I've seen high flash sand, I've seen sand mounds, I've seen low bunkers, I've seen you know crown greens, push up greens, and I always make the joke when you hear. Uh, a broadcaster, you know, at a an event at Pinehurst, U.S. Open at Pinehurst. These are typical Ross bunkers or typical Ross greens. Like, no, they're not. You know, right? Pinehurst greens are 18 inches higher than they were originally, and they originally were sand greens. And the bunkers and changed top- over the years. Yeah, and they top dressed them for years because they were common Bermuda greens. And I think the last version of Pinehurst greens were replicated from 19 the specs from 1960 you know some photos or documents they have from 60 mm-hmm. so that's the way back so when people say they're an expert i i always cringe a little bit yeah you know don don ross is his expert we're you know we're trying our best to extrapolate interpolate what was on site it, to me the more archaeology you do the better chance you're going to get it close to being right i would I would think that the more Ross courses you saw, the less confident in your expertise about his architecture you'd get because you'd see so much and you'd almost yeah. get to the point where you're confused and, and you were unable to really make any kind of solid value-based judgment because it's so diverse and there's so many factors involved. That's correct. I think what it is is that it makes you not make assumptions. Right. And it makes you do your homework on that specific golf course. And that's the key. Get do do the due diligence. Get in the archives. Get old aerial photos. Find out what was there. Photos don't lie, but assumptions are still assumptions. So you can't come in and say, "Well, I'm just going to build a typical Ross bunker here." You know, you have to do your homework to, to see that that fits there. <laughs> well, what what makes a a great restoration or renovation specialist? And I hate that word specialist because it, it's narrowing. But what what makes somebody in your genre working right now really good versus somebody you know who you maybe think isn't quite as good? I think it's being selfless. It's doing your homework and trying to make it feel and look like an old Ross course, not your course. You know, it's a lot. When you see the top hundred list names and you see 
Donald Ross and then somebody else's name next to it. That kind of makes me cringe. You know, all you're doing is just repainting. You're just sprucing up the bunkers. You didn't do the routing or the greens. So, you know, he should get credit. So I think when you go in, the best guys are, you know, take their ego out of it. And they're just there grinding and trying to make it a great golf course again without putting their input in it, you know, their ego into it. Oh, this is my version of it. I'm just trying to do the best version I can. So I think, I think, you know, the, the best guys I know are that way. They're, mm -hmm. they're just dedicated and you don't, you don't hear their name about involved in it. It's just a great Ross golf course. And if, if you found out I was there, great, but I, my, I don't, I don't want my main mention much. I'm just laying in the weeds, just trying to do the best work I can. For for most of your clients that you've worked with, whether it's a uh, Ross course, well, I, I'll ask another question. Let me ask this first. So most of the clients sure. that you've worked for, especially especially Donald Ross courses, are they almost always trying at this point in history, in their history, trying to get the golf course back to some version of the Ross? I mean, are they going for a quote unquote, like true restoration? Um, not everybody, because there's always, you know, I was in a meeting with a bunch of single digit players yesterday and they're all focused about back tees <laughs> you know yeah. and making bunkers relevant to them so uh you can't you can't do a pure restoration because uh, most cases impractical and uh, there's always some kind of agendas within the the committee of the membership oh you can't put that little cool cross bunker in because the high handicappers are going to be in it or something like that so um you know, you, are you ever conflicted between your desire to represent the original architecture as closely as possible versus the needs of the club if they want to try to steer things or, and sh start shifting bunkers or, or other aspects of the architecture around? I, I, I tend to be uh, more on Ross's side of the, of, of the plate and, you know, because it's easier to defend. Hey, he put it in there. I'm just restoring. I'm putting it back. That cross bunker, you know, and uh, so... I'm never conflicted. I'm pretty strong now. I've done this long enough where, um, you know, I think, I think Tom always taught me or Pete always taught Tom, you can, you know, don't be afraid to walk away. Mm -hmm. if, if they're, if they're pushing you to do something that you don't believe in, or it's going in the wrong direction, um, walk, you know, they're, you know, I, I, I like helping clubs that want to be helped. Um, but there is some conflict. There's always, there's always a give and take it, it, depending on what the membership wants. You know, it's usually those, especially in a Ross course, it's usually those bunkers that are 100 yard off the tee or a cross bunker that's in the middle of the fairway or something like that, that people like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's just so penal. I'm like, well, it's a gun sight. There's a reason he put it in there. It gives you a, a you know, the shot is semi-blind and it gives you a kind of a gun sight for your tee shot. Yeah, but it's 100 yards off the tee. It doesn't make sense. You know, you, it's just a catch-22 argument. I'm like, well, that's what Ross wanted and it makes sense to me. Um <laughs> You know, I, I always tell them, I, you know, I work at a club in Providence and great Warwick Country Club. It's a great Ross course, kind of a hidden gem that's really coming up. And there's a bunch of those bunkers, 100 yards, 150 yards up the tee, and they wanted to wipe them out. I'm like, I go, you might as well just wipe off Donald Ross's name off your scorecard if you're doing that. I go, that's what makes this place cool in character. They, he had intention. The design was intended to have that bunker there. And if you just take it out, it's just kind of a, you know, kind of a ho-hum golf hole. Yeah. So there's, there's always a battle and I'm pretty strong and 
I'm getting old enough where I'm always worried about myself getting too grumpy with these people, <laughs> intolerant with the, you know, their disdain or their their lack of reverence to Donald Ross. I get a little irritated. No, you got you got to fight. You got to fight the fight. You know, oh, there's yeah. only a few people out there who are standing up for this. And, that's and a, your you grumpiness know, and that's, is, that's, is becoming. I think they like that deep down. And that's part of the fun. You know, it's it's. I, you know, I have, I have great, I'm a very casual and very open person when it comes to consulting and they know what I get. And they, you know, the, the beauty is it's the old thing. You know, if you tell the truth, you can tell the truth again. If you lie, you, you can't come back and, you know, you might mix up your lies. So just tell the truth all the time and, t- you know, whether they like it or not, that's your job as a consultant. You have to tell them what, what you think is right and they'll come around and they, they always appreciate it. So we just talked about Ross, and there's such a volume of of knowledge about him. Now, we agreed that there's no such thing as an expert, but he did leave behind a lot of detailed plans and and green sketches, and you can get a very good idea of what his thought process was on any given site if the records are there. But you also are working on courses that were originally designed by Willie Park, Walter Travis, Herbert Strong. What's the documentation Mm -hmm. like when you move on to somebody off who's not Ross? Did they... Are you able to find their notes? Is it as you know, laid out for you? No, because the Ross is, you know, you just go to Tufts Archives and it's all there. You know, pretty much every club has, if they don't have a routing and a bunch of field notes, it's somewhere, <laughs> you know, the Ross is so well documented, but everybody else really wasn't. So it's mostly, it's mostly aerial photography if you can, or, or I just come through the clubhouse and look for, you know, these photos, social photos that might have, uh, golf holes in the background, you know, to kind of give you a hint of what's, what was there. You just need a few cues, you know, bunkering is still, you know, bunkering is kind of overrated. You know, there's it's still bunkers and they wear out over time. So they're always evolving their look. So you don't have to necessarily like, this is what the trip, this is what Travis's style is. I don't think any of those guys had style. Willie Park Jr., Travis, all those guys in that, mid twenties and thirties basically built the cut and fill bunkers, you know, just like Ross would have you know, has where they're just kind of rumped up, you know, Flynn had more flared up sand. His style was more unique, but some of those kind of mid-level, uh, Devereux Emmett, Willie Park, they were more utilitarian bunkers where they were just, you know, cut and fill, flip up the dirt, build the green site, kind of sod going down to the floor and let it be, you know, and there was no rules whether they saw the sand or not, but just kind of simple, yeah, simple architecture, but which I think is beautiful architecture. You know, there's a lot of character. You can do a lot of character in the faces, in the, the mounding and the burning of the bunkers that make it look kind of old school and natural. I would imagine that figuring out how to contour greens if you're rebuilding greens on these courses is a little more difficult because you have a lot less to go on. You can't tell from photographs what the elevations no. of the greens are. My rule of thumb is don't rebuild a green. You know, if that's a Travis green, why are you rebuilding it? <laughs> you know, yeah. That's some of the coolest well, greens in the always, world. Can you always tell? Uh, do you always know for sure that it, that it hasn't evolved over time or it has, you know, obviously there's going to be shrinkage and, it, you know, there's going to be top dressing and other things that happen to yeah. a green through the decades. Usually, if it was rebuilt, you know it because it's probably the lamest bunk green on the golf course. <laughs> yeah, you know it's pretty simple. You, you know, rebuilt greens stick out like a sore thumb, and I just go, "All right, who was here when? You know, who did those?" Mm-hmm. And uh, because 
they're generally not as good or as, as character as the originals. And they, they'll stand out like, a, you know, stand out like a sore thumb. And then, you know, and that's okay because, you know, there was a reason for them rebuilding it some way. You know, I always try to dig into the psyche and the, the logic of, of, all right, why did you guys rebuild this? You know, what was the logic behind all this? Because nobody really cared. It wasn't, it wasn't until the late 80s and early 90s when people started really putting the love on these old architects. Right. I think Frank Hannigan's article about Tilling Us, and I think Brian Silver wrote an article about Ross, and that's kind of kicked all of us in the gear when we all started doing this stuff and people started thinking about, wow, who was Donald Ross or who was Tilling Us or who was C.B. McDonald or whatever. Nobody really cared before that because it was kind of the modern, you know, mid-century modernism yeah. Robert Trent Jones rebuilding everything you know and then you know Pete came along and the Joneses and everybody else and Fozzie was and rebuilding was bigger than than the original so yeah I mean I, people who listen to this podcast know that I'm really interested in into that period in, in architecture the you know the 50s through the early 80s maybe because I don't think it's really been explored that carefully it's just ubiquitous and we just take it for granted and we chalk it up to uh, we, we don't have a lot of good things to say about golf architecture in that period and and for no. good reasons but it, it deserves exploration so you've done yes. some exploration and you yeah. you said you try to get into the psyche was there yeah. thinking about these golf courses that you're working on that were altered during that middle mid-century period you just referenced is there is there a decade that you noticed that most of the work was done or did it get worse? Is there any kind of pattern that you can discern? You you said you're trying to figure out why a why a green would be rebuilt and, and who rebuilt it and what they were thinking. Like so what have you what have you come to learn from that exploration? I think it was, you know, Jones Robert John Jones Sr. was rebuilding courses and did really good work. Like Oakland Hills, his remodel probably was better than Ross's. You know, as for a championship venue, he was rebuilding for U.S. Opens. So I think most of Jones's work wasn't bad. You know, I think he was just he was making it man size and making it for championships. And he got really busy and really popular. And all of a sudden his name was bigger than anybody else's in the business. You know, he made it a profession. He was the king and and did good work. You know, I don't think any of Jones's remodels were bad. It's it's the next group. When we got in the 80s. When architecture got a little more prolific and there was a lot more architects out there, that's when I think the bad work was done. The guys, you know, Robert Trent Jones was our first profession, you know, professional architect. He, he went to school, he studied, you know, he was, he had his kids working for him and he had, the, you know, Roger Wuwich, he, he was a professional and, and did his homework. And then I think in the eighties, we got a lot of kind of B-level architects. There were, there was so much work that, they were high, clubs were hiring anybody. And I just think that was the week period when there was a lot of schlocky things being rebuilt just for the sake of rebuilding it, just for the sake of generating work. And it wasn't not that they weren't capable. They just weren't educated enough to passionate enough to blend into what was there. They just, you know, a lot of the mentality was, well, if I rebuild this green, they're going to want and do a really good job. They're going to want to rebuild all 18, the other 17 greens. So it was kind of generating work yeah. more than 
the artwork, the, you know, the art and the passion of the architecture. Yeah. The other thing I wonder is during this period of time, there's so much, there's so much out there available information available. If you want to learn about Donald Ross or are now, now so much is being more learned about, you know, Travis and, and Willie Park and some of these like guys that are not Tillinghast and Ross and McKinsey, you can find it. I mean, there's a lot more scholarship well, out there than there was in the seventies and eighties. So even if so somebody true. wanted to know or wanted to do a good job, I don't know that they, there's any way, you know, they, nobody had gone through and dug up all these aerial photographs from the 1930s yet. I don't, no. as far as I know. So I it, that didn't happen until later where you could actually like really figure out what was there originally. You're kind of flying we were, blind. We, we were pretty much the first wave. You know, Ron, when I worked for Ron Forrest in 1990, Brian Silva, Ron Forrest, Tom had just started doing a little bit of work. He was, I think Tom's first restoration was like piping rock. And he worked for Pete. And Pete said, hey, and go do that. And, and I think they were going to remodel the whole thing. And Tom said, whoa, wait a second. You know, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Gil kind of jumped in a little bit later. Um, you know, when he went on his own, that was the kind of work he was getting. Ron Pritchard came along. You know, you know, all, you know, Keith Foster was working for Art Hill. So Keith didn't start really doing this restoration work until he left Art Hills, mm -hmm. probably in the late 90s. Um, so all the, the top guys, the top tier guys, you know, we all didn't really start doing this until the early nineties and we were digging, you know, we were, that's when we were starting to dig for stuff. And then, you know, people started writing books and like you say, there's, you know, back in our days when we first got in the business, there was, you know, the links by Hunter, there's George Thomas's book, Mackenzie's book. And that was about it. Right. You know, yeah. Darwin's book. Um, you know, there was there was ten great architecture books that we all had. Now, man, you could you know, there's just so many. Yeah, you think about how many have been written since then, which is awesome. You know, I love it. You know, there's not, information is knowledge, and you know, it's great, it's powerful. So, the more we, more we get, you know, the libraries are crawling with great architecture books now. When I was in college, the only book I found was uh, Ron Witten's book. You know, the golf course, and uh, that yeah. influenced me hugely. You know. It was gigantic yeah. to me. I imagine because nobody at that point had really pieced together the the tra trace and the, the arc of how architecture evolved and how golf courses moved from the links into all the ah. machinery age. Ron's book was the biggest, you know, the biggest change. One of the biggest changes in my one that got me in the business because I could realize he could do it. And then just the database that he had and the, the biographies of the of the architects and where they worked, and it gave me places to go study and go look and. You know, I had a whole list of, and, and then who worked on what? And that, that was the interesting part of me is like, if you had this great old club and uh, Ron had already, you know, databased who had worked on it when. So you could see the, you know, the chronology of, of remodeling at a, a at a club. So yeah. there was a, a wealth of knowledge. I still pulled, that's the, I pulled that book off my shelf more than, than any other book by far, 10 to one. My, I, yeah, I'm my, constantly I going to it. I have the first version that's so dog-eared, and then he came up with the architects of golf. You know, the first one was yeah. the golf course, and, and I have both, and I reference them all the time. They're just worn out. I, you know, luckily I have nice inscriptions by Ron in them, uh, but they're dog-eared. You know, they're working <laughs> working tools. I know. He he said he's got enough information now for an updated version. Like basically, he, the architects of golf came out in '93. And yeah. he's been compiling information since then. I mean, that book's going to be like the Webster Dictionary by now. 
if he ever gets oh, to it. Me, you know, because I talked to him about it because he always asks us to update our stuff. You know, I was briefly mentioned under Ron. Ron just got in under the in '93, and I was I was his associate, so I briefly got mentioned in the that version. But you know, he always asks you to update it periodically what you've done, and I just can't imagine how big. He he thought you know the only way he could actually do it would be online because the the bound copy would be, mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know, like some baseball statistic book you know that's just fat as all could be. Uh, I, I would love it, but I think compile it would be just almost almost impossible. I know, I know. I hope he gets it done somehow. Maybe I'll, I'm willing to. I'm willing to help. I'll, I'll, yeah, I would I'm be too. Him. I would. I think it would just be the coolest thing because it was such a huge influence on me. Um, in my career and still is, uh, I owe a lot to Ron, you know, Ron's a good friend and, and he's, he's been good to architecture and all of us architects. And, uh, it'd be cool if he was able to pull that together. And maybe we need to, maybe we need to all pull our weight and chip in if we, if it comes down to that. Yeah, exactly. I'm willing. So I want to go back. You mentioned like, and I wanted to talk to you about this because it's very interesting to me. I'm curious about what it was like to be in this moment. In the in 1990, you start re- working for Ron Force, and you work yeah. with him for three years. But as you said, you were the, really the first generation of architects and designers who were studying the golden age and the old architects whose architecture in almost everywhere had been buried under time. What was, so, yeah. and you mentioned how you kind of first heard about that. Talk, if you can talk a little bit about the awakening that you guys went through and, and some of the early discoveries that you and Ron made. Well, it was, it was mostly, it, it was just exciting because it was like untapped knowledge, you know, untapped resources where, you know, I'd have Ron, Ron Witten's book out and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go see that golf course. And, and we would just go, independently or together just go studying golf courses and that's what tom doke did you know he his early years and the confidential guy grew from that mm-hmm. is we weren't looking for work we were looking to study that that golf course and see how, why it was good and then peel apart the layers what had changed what it hadn't so it's pretty exciting you know i'd make phone calls to i remember doing a study once i spent like for a like a month calling every Rainer and McDonald golf course and asking the superintendents if they had found cinder layers under their uh, BRS hole to find out if there was, if CB McDonald or Rainer had ever intended to have the flag in the front half of the BRS green. <laughs> and these and they're, they're were, probably like, how the hell should I know? Blown away. They're like, nobody's ever called it. Nobody's even known what CB McDonald was. So they were kind of blown away that this young guy was asking them these questions and they'd go out and probe, you know? So I had a study of every, every beer red screen. And, you know, we found out that Rainer was such a brilliant engineer. He used a cinder layer uh, as a drainage layer under his greens mix or his soil mix. And that's what he uses drainage. And a handful of them did have them in the front, but most of them, most of them, uh, the cinders were in the back half. So it, it, what my logic meant, it was like, they ne- you never intended to have the flag in the in the swale or in the front. In the front, it would have been kind of a lame 150 yard hole. In the swale, it would have been kind of silly. And then, but it was always meant to be in the back, the big long 200 yard plus hole. Uh-huh. And so that was kind of that process. But it was pretty exciting to call these clubs and like, well, if you're in the area, come by. I'm like, well, I'm going to come by. And you know, I was like the first architect to visit some of these clubs since the original architect maybe you know mm-hmm. and got a lot of work out of the deal you know it, was, it wasn't part of, it was i guess it was part of the, 
method of my madness, but I got a lot of work, consulting work over the years by just cold calling and stopping by and just really just wanting to see their golf course. They were blown away that somebody would want to come and study their golf course because nobody ever had. And I imagine that getting kind of turning it, I aching it to really, you know, turning a battleship to get slowly, you slowly get clubs on board one at a time, convincing them because they're not going to do it themselves because they don't know, but you're convincing them to prize their heritage and their architecture and to open their eyes to this. And eventually, you know, you're turning these clubs and creating this, this movement, this wave movement, maybe not intentionally, but you're trying to, you know, emphasize original architectural intent but it's probably got to be very slow in in catching on and and convincing clubs to to let you work on their golf course it was because you're you know i was like a a canterbury canterbury in ohio i'd stopped by a ton of times and and terry bonner was the superintendent he was the sweetest man and he let me come by he thought he thought he got a kick out of this young guy coming by and just studying herbert strong i was like i don't know what the hell he's doing you know and i'm out there just like this place is so cool and when they decided to hire an architect it was like it was me art hills and some other prominent architects and i'm just like you know this punk kid going up against the great art hills of ohio and that the great art hills you know but you know luckily i got the job because of my passion more than anything i think to art Rightfully so. It was just another job. You know, he was just going to remodel it. He was just going to rebuild all the greens and the bunkers and in his style because that's what every club that wanted him to do. And so, you know, I had to come by and go, you know, it's pretty good right now. We need to cut some trees down, fix the mowing. And I think it's really good. And they're like, I guess it is really good, you know, if you do all that. And they realized they didn't have to spend a couple million bucks on the onset that we could make this a lot more fun and really appreciate the original architecture just by doing these simple things, by cutting some trees down and, and you know, correct, expanding the greens and the approaches. And, you know, it, it, it took time to build that kind of momentum, but people started, you know, and then peer pressure from other clubs. Hey, what do you get? You know, one club's asking that club, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're restoring it. You know, I'm like, wow, well, you should think that too. So it, it, it built over time, but it was really slow. You're correct. You meant we mentioned Piping Rock a minute ago, and you won the best uh, renovation in nineteen, uh, sorry, two thousand sixteen from Golf yeah. Digest for that. I was looking at, into that a little bit. I did not realize that Pete Dye had worked on that course. That's out of yeah, character for him to do a well, renovation. Well, that was Tom. That was actually, you know, I think it was eighty six or something. Like Tom was still working with Pete, and Pete got a phone call from I don't know who it was, some some big official. You know, Piping Rock's quite a hidden club, and some officials said, "Hey, when should come up?" So Pete said, "Hey Tom, will you go look at this?" So Tom was in charge of the restoration, and it was it it was kind of a restoration. PV or, or I think PV was involved, and they rebuilt a few, you know, they rebuilt a few things. It, you know, Tom was trying to keep it a restoration as much as possible, even though nobody knew what that word was at the time, and did a lot of work. They, um, you know, and because Robert Trent Jones had come in at one time in the fifties and did his thing. So the bunkering had all changed. So Tom was kind of the the impetus behind that to say, Hey, let's look at these old photos and let's put this stuff back. So Tom put most of it, you know, a lot of it back to make it feel like an old McDonald course again, that, you know, so that was really cool. And then, then they hired, 
they, they brought us back with Renaissance, you know, work for Tom and Tom said, why don't you go look at it? And they, I was their consultant for a while. And then, um, they had had a superintendent, um, that was kind of the gatekeeper of the place for years and kind of ran, ran the place. And he had modified a lot of things to his liking. Um, he one was a preservationist, but he also was a creationist too. He, he created a <laughs> yeah. lot of things, scenarios. So he had at, at it. And so they basically hired me to kind of reel him in. He unfortunately has passed away since and uh, is a great guy. But my job was to kind of put the reins on him and, and you know, corral the Rainer and McDonald period back into it. And then uh, a couple of years ago, you know, since I've been at my, on my own, I've been their consultant and we did pretty extensive project restoring all the bunkers we got that superintendent who, who since passed away he, he he got let go or, or, or retired and they brought in dan powell from pine, uh, pine valley and he's just crushing it you know we just expanded we instead we expanded all the fairways the greens out redid all the bunkering pulled all the trees out and that place is perfect it was kind of a hodgepodge when i first got hired it really wasn't one of the best mcdonald slash rainer courses of the seven or eight that McDonald did. Mm -hmm. And now it's right up there. It's right behind the national. It's really good. And it's just having the right people involved, you know, the right club members who are dedicated historians to really restore that place. And then we had the right superintendent. The superintendent's the most important, you know, if, if he's not on board, it's not happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I've, well, I've like you said, really, he's the, ga the gatekeeper, you know, that I've been so lucky. I've had, I, you know, all my superintendents, all my clubs are great, but I've had some of the best and they, you know, they add some of their own flavor uh, under your tutelage too, that make it even better. Um, you know, I can't say enough of those guys. Well, around this time or not this time, but around 1993, you went uh, and switched offices. You went to work for Tom Doak. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about this period in time. It's a different era in golf course architecture than we're familiar with now sand hills had not yet come i mean it was being built but even after it first opened not a lot of people knew about it we're still stuck in a very specific style of architecture their housing development architecture the big firms you know the uh, player architect firms everything's you know with big staffs and what is what did it feel like to start working with Tom Doak, this guy who was going to, you know, go on to become our generation's one or, you know, the first or second most prominent architect of our generation. Was there a, what, what did the architecture world feel like to you in those mid 90 years? Well, I knew, I knew Tom, um, even when I was in college, I, I wrote him a couple letters and I'd be that guy that call him once a month and bug him and ask him some stupid question. What, what, did you know, what, did, what did, actually did you know about him? Um, he was building, he was, uh, building high point up here in Michigan. Okay. And the story was this young kind of brilliant guy was, you know, just kind of out there was going to build this minimalist kind of this different kind of golf course. And, and I followed it and I'm like, that guy, you know, that guy's got something. He's just, well, it was once in a generational young, young talented guys. And some I knew about it, you know, I, I just followed you know, his career, he wrote, you know, when he wrote the anatomy of golf course, you know, I, I read that from cover to cover in about two hours as soon as it came out. So Gil, Gil had just left him. And so he was looking for somebody, you know, to fill that spot, kind of run the company. And I think our had just been hired. So, uh, 
I was going to jump in the opportunity because I wanted to shape also. But, you know, for the first three or four years, we did nothing but my remodel projects. You know, we didn't, we didn't have any new work, but, you know, I had faith in them. (laughs) You'd have to. There's a point, there was a point where Abina was almost let go because we were out of money. You know, I was luckily making money doing renovation work and that was kind of keeping the company floating. And God, I think we were within a month of Jim getting a pink slip, you know, and all of a sudden we we got Beach Street. I think it was the year we got Evansville or Beach Street. It kind of saved our company. But for the first three years, we were just doing nothing but remodel work. Tom was writing a book and um, I'd go over to his house once a week and we just kind of goof around with some plans, you know, waiting for something to happen. Uh, but I had faith in them, and I got, you know, luckily I got to move back to Traverse City, you know, into tra- back to Traverse City, and um, and then all of a sudden, you know, we heard about the Sand Hills being built. Uh, we knew Bill and Ben pretty well, and I remember talking to Bill on the phone. He goes, "Man, you're not going to believe this place." You know, they flew in a helicopter up there with Ron Witten, and, and that kind of changed everything. Kind of ever gave everybody faith that something, something like that could be built. And we struggled along, but we, we built some pretty cool, cool kind of simple golf courses. Well, were you, were you sitting there kind of, you know, you know, the talent that you guys have, you probably had an idea of what type of golf courses you wanted to build and you weren't getting the opportunity Mm -hmm. and that you're looking out left, right, up, down, and you're seeing, you know, Nicholas course here, Arthur Hills course here, uh, Arnold Palmer here, Tom Fazio here. I mean, are you, are you like, you don't have to answer this honestly i hope you do but are you like we're better than this like we have we can do a better job than well we thought we could you know we we just needed opportunities and we did we got them in small scales it was hard to get in the jobs we got we got you know kind of c-level projects but we we turned them into something cool that you know we're following tom's lead he knew he knew what he wanted to do tom's i always say tom's brilliance has never changed He, he always had the same ideas we just got better at facilitating those ideas, you know, the layers as we progressed as shapers and associates, we were better able to bring his ideas to fruition. And then we took it to a, you know, a different level and a higher science and we kept bringing on a higher talent. You know, some of the guys that we, you know, when Brian Slama came on that changed our company because he was the Finnish guy. He's the guy that was anally detailed at putting all the cool details in and then we eric iverson got hired so it was so it was it was you and then and jim it was just me and jim and then brian then eventually excuse me the chronology was jim then me right after that then we brought tom mead on for a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, we hired don placek who kind of then took you know he came from the die organization it was Tom and eric iverson Brought in Don, and Don kind of took over the office. You know, he's just a great, he's the rock of the Renaissance. He doesn't get much credit, or, but he's the rock of the place. He take, he holds it all together. He's the brilliant artist, still a really good consultant. Um, and then that released me out of the field because I wanted to go shape. I wanted to learn how to shape. And uh, we built some, you know, we built some golf courses, and, and um, you know, Jim was the primary shaper. He taught you know, taught me how to shape and we were, we weren't the great, you know, we were good, but we weren't great shapers. We still had a lot of finish work we had to do and our finish work wasn't still all that great. And we, Brian Slana came on as my, our, our intern from Michigan state at Beach Street. And when he came on, 
weak. This is how talented he is and smart. He went to UVA for architecture and got a Michigan State degree at Turf. Week one, he was on the drainage crew. Week two, he ran the drainage crew. Week three, he ran basically the construction site for the owner. <laughs> Just that kind of a talent. And he's grown on to be, you know, miraculous. But he was the one that took us to a different level because he was paying attention to finish work. And it all got it, you know, it's kind of, it all wraps back to Dave Axel and Dan Proctor. They were the myth, you know, these mythical features when they, when the Sandhills was built, we always heard about these two mystical feet characters that are good friends of mine now, mm-hmm. but they were building things by hand with sand pros and rakes and the finish work and the detail work. And we heard about that and, and Brian was hugely inspired by that and that we wanted to up our game. And it was always catching up with Corin Crenshaw. And Brian's the one that upped it. And we, we, we eventually, he, he stayed with us on and off his project, you know, projects. And finally, he came to Pacific Dunes. And not enough people know that the huge influence of Brian Slonick on Pacific Dunes. All the books are written geared towards others. But behind the scenes, all of us know that he was the, he was the final rake before every blade of grass when seed went down. And he, he, he took it to a complete, our company to a completely different level, just on finish work and detail work and bunker work and things like that. Tom's genius has always been steady. It's just, but Brian took us up to a different level of, of that kind of detail, a plus detail work that nobody else was doing other than Corn Crenshaw Mm -hmm. and got, and got us into that game with those guys. Um, you know, they were heavily influences on us because we were always looking up to them and trying to catch up to them. And we got there. So <laughs> I, get- I, I, I always try to ask the, the people who come on the podcast to sort of do like a little peer appreciation. And I ask them, what's the best modern golf course or golf course built by your, your uh, peers that you've seen? And far and away, the two answers I get most are obviously Sand Hills and Pacific Dunes. And, yeah. you know, and you try to think about what makes Pacific Dunes so great. And, and a lot of people always talk about the routing. And I do think there's something really special about the experience of walking that golf course yeah. But it's, I think a lot of the greatness is hard to put your finger on, and I, you're kind of touching on that. What What is the greatness of the Pacific Dunes in, in your eyes? What makes that course one of the very best in the world? It is the routing. Um, one, one, it was like the people, you know, to me it was, it was a great site to start with. And under Tom's leadership, you know, Tom usually has himself, he has a, a leader, associate and then you know us the rest of us shaping on it tom was like his own associate out there he spent so much time we all did we were begging to go out there and work on that project so we were so dedicated i think it was being so dedicated to making it right and not ruining it um a lot of i've talked to a lot of architects like oh i would have screwed this site up (laughs) you know I, i couldn't help myself tom you know the beauty brilliance of tom was restraint it's quite restraint, knowing when when to get off it, that that's good, <clears throat> and not messing it too much where you get you get in your way of yourself. And Tom's routing was perfect. You know, it got to the ocean uh, two or three different times. Uh, the holes are going in different wind directions, where you know twelve and four are, are opposed to each other because the wind is always in one direction or the other. Um, it's a sandy soil. You have the ocean, 
all kinds of elevation changes, high green site, low green sites. Every variety you can possibly think of, Tom got in that routing. And then we all just were dedicated to make it the coolest thing we could. You know, one of the coolest days of my life out there was Jim, Jim was just about to leave and, and, and you know, for a couple of weeks. And he, he told Brian and I, just go, do, just go make those two holes, holes really cool. And it was like the, I think it was the first and then the ninth hole. And we spent two, two weeks in sand pros and a bulldozer just romping up the fairways and making cool contours and just thinking about golf. And I think that's what, what made it so good is that we, we put every effort into it without too much effort. And it's also, you know, we had Ken Nice who's now, you know, he evolved into probably the best superintendent in the planet. <clears throat> he just came on board. It was just like the, we always say the moons were aligned perfectly for that job, that we were all in the right space. Tom was, it was our time. We didn't screw it up. And we put every effort we could into it. And when I go and play it and walk it, it's like one of those, I wouldn't redo anything. And I don't think any of us would do because it, it's so much fun to play. Tom was able to break a lot of rules that were already set in place by Bandon. So we didn't have to build the, the 7,500 yard golf course, par 72. He could put two par threes in a row. So there was no constraints other than building the coolest golf holes and golf course you possibly can. And I think we did. <laughs> That's the fun part. And so do many so other people. Play it. Yeah. You go back and play it and you just go, God, I can't believe I was whatever part I was of this, I can't believe I get to come back and play this. Yeah. It was just, you know, Don Plasek, if you ever went into um, the maintenance building, Don Plasek is a brilliant arch uh, uh, artist, wrote, uh, drew on this whiteboard, all the planets in the universe aligned up. And it was this really cool, uh, uh, the picture's roving somewhere, but he had all the moons and all the planets aligned. And that's kind of what it was. It was just like the perfect storm. We had the right client that took a chance on Tom. Uh, Tom was in the perfect space. We had nothing else going on. We could all spend, I spent 120 days out there and I was just kind of a freelancer guy out there helping out as much as I can. You know, Jim was brilliant at it. And that's, you know, the birth of kind of Brian Slonick was there every single day, putting, you know, growing on it and putting his magic. And we all, we all hit our stride there, you know, especially Tom. I think that's that's why it's that good. Yeah. I think it's just everything everything fell into place, and we've we've had a few projects fall into place since like that. But uh, it was a magical time. It was just one of the funnest times to ever build. Well, I, it sounds just listening to you speak. It's obviously like a, a, kind of a once in a once in a career opportunity, just because everything fell into place and it was new. It was the first. It was really the first time. It was Tom's and Renaissance Golf's coming out party to the to the world. Well, um, yeah. Did you get the same? Do you get the same feeling now when you go back and look at Old McDonald? How was the experience at the no, same no. resort? Different. It was different because it was a whole different dynamic. Um, Mike had hired, you know, wanted Tom to do, it, but he, he kind of forced Tom to have Jimmer be in it as his co-designer. Mm -hmm. So that didn't sit well with a whole lot of people. Um, and we tried to recreate the magic; it what kind of wasn't there. But it, you know, Old McDonald's cool. It's really fun to play. Um, but it's, you know, when I go out there, I, I you know, it, it, it turned out really, really good, but it's not Pacific Dunes. You know, it, it, it doesn't have the magic 
of the, uh, you know, we, we had a lot more, you know, we had a lot more players involved. Kai Golby was there, Brian Schneider, Slonik. We, you know, we had a bigger team ro- rotating in. Um, I think it's really, really good. It turned out really fun. Uh, but it's, you know, you still go, if you had your first choice around the golf, you're going to go play Pacific Dunes. Do you, yeah. Do, I mean, it also think, I also think, you know, it, it, I've, and I've written this, I don't think, I don't know if anybody's read it, but I've written it that, you know, I wonder if how good that, that land or that property could have been. And I think it's a great golf course, but I wonder how good it have been if, you, if it wasn't being created in the Mc, McDonald Rainer style, you know, you weren't trying yeah. to build those template holes. It seems it's such a cool property. It's a very unique property that ever how most of it sits in that bowl. I just, you know, it, I always wonder what, I wonder what if just left to their own devices, what kind of golf course they could have made. I know, you know, because when we were building Pacific Dunes, we always looked over there. You know, it's right next to 15 and 16 here, just looking over there going, dang, that that's that's some that could be a really cool kind of a quiet ground, quiet golf course over there. And, and I remember Coor was really pissed when we got the job to do Old McDonald. He'd already built trails. And I remember he told Mike, he goes, damn how come you didn't give me that property, you know, to do my, you know, he got stuck on the other side of the dune to do, you know, trails. He goes, I wish I had gotten that property. I know. Uh, And yeah. Um, who knows? You know, I think it turned out really good. Even, you know, we weren't, we were, we were doing temple holes, but we were trying not to do it. Uh, you know, that fate, you know, like you were just replicating. Exactly. We're trying to do temple holes that might've fit that certain area. Some work, some don't, you know, I think it's, it's a cool, it was a cool concept. It was Mike's concept for us. It was like a, another great opportunity to go out, spend more time in band and which we had a bunch of good friends and we did the sheep ranch, you know, it was involved in a sheep ranch and that was fun. Um, just another good excuse to go out there, but it somehow just didn't create the same magic that, uh, that you had your first time out there. Well, I mean, and I think that's the difference between what will probably be historically known as one of the, you know, 10 or 15 greatest golf courses ever built versus old McDonald, which is, you know, maybe in the next category or two down. Um, it's just that those intangible little pieces that go into the construction and the, and the property itself too is amazing. Yeah. I think it's the property. It's just, you know, it was the, it was the fourth course being built there and it, it didn't have that, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't really, uh, you know, it wasn't until the last second that, we, you know, Tom jumped seven green up onto the hill. You know, that, that all kind of came about. We were walking the original routing with Mike and Tom. Jim took us up to, I think the, the original 7T was going to be up on, up on the dune looking mm-hmm. at the ocean. And, and Mike goes, why can't we build a green here? And Tom goes, I didn't think we could, you know, because of permit wise. And Tom immediately, it was kind of a cool moment. Tom walked back into the fairway. I think Jim was over on, on the phone somewhere and Tom's walking down the fairway, looking up at this. And I said, this is, this is just like the 14th at, uh, at Bally now where we just carve this dune out, set a green. in so you can see through it. All of a sudden Tom yells up the 14th at Bally <laughs> You know, I'm like, there it is. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden we got a green site up there, you know, and then we look down that down in, you know, which was going to be a green. You could see where the eighth hole, the Biarritz hole was going to be. It all fell into place. It was you could just see Tom's brain grinding. Once he got the information, he could put the green up there on the dune. All the routing, you know, we had some complications later in the routing. It all fell into place. Um, but it, it made the golf course a lot better because we could all of a sudden have views of the ocean. We didn't, you didn't get that many views from that, you know, from Old McDonald. And all of a sudden, we got a green up there uh, that you could see the water 
I'm like, all right, this is going to be better than we thought it would be. Hey, I'm going to jump in with a quick note here. Don't fast forward this. I just want to remind you, if you haven't yet, uh, please go to iTunes or some other podcast provider and, and give the show a star rating if you would. Uh, if you like what you hear, you like the interviews, you like the content that we're bringing you, it's just a couple of clicks. Give it a star rating. Leave a comment if you're so inclined. If you're on social media, if you're on Twitter or Instagram, bump the episode, retweet an episode when I post it. You can help me out doing that. Uh, but just you know, weigh in. Let me know you're out there. Let me know what you think of the show. All right. Back to Bruce Hefner. Well, you just mentioned one, basically what I really wanted to talk to you about is Ballyneal. But, but before we get to that, um, fill us out with the rest of this Renaissance staff. Did, did um, Iverson come on? Was he there at Pacific Dunes as well, or did he come on? No, he wasn't. It was just Jim, Jim, Brian, Don, and I. Uh-huh. Um, Tommy spent a little time out there, but he was prepping to do some other stuff. And then eventually... Um, you know, Eric Iverson in Plasic were, had a company together because they left the Die organization. And then Don came work for us, and Eric was out there doing some of his own. Did a great golf course called Staley Farms in Kansas City. Right. Um, and so we, he was kind of a hired gun, and, and we Tom wanted we needed somebody to shape uh, Riverfront down in Norfolk, Virginia. And I was running that project. I'm like, I'd love to work with Eric. So we brought him in. Um, kind of as a hired shaper, as a hired gun. And, and I didn't realize how good he was um, until then. And he is basically, you know, he's Tom's best shaper. He took a, he took us to a completely different level. He's such an elegant shaper, an elegant person. And we actually call him the binky. Tom's binky. He's the go-to guy. He's the go-to Don't guy. Don't lose the binky. Yeah, but he's the guy. You know, and he taught he taught the two Bryans uh, how to shape. You know, Jim kind of taught us how to run bulldozers. Eric taught everybody how to shape. You know, every every blade has a purpose. There's elegance to it. Um, there's a speed to it. He's a third gear shaper, and uh, I mean, just a brilliant mind. And Tom knew him way back when he was just helping on the irrigation at uh, at High Point. So he came on board and then eventually said, you know, he needs to be a full-time guy. And then, you know, he's, he's the other, the, the other two, Brian Slonick and Schneider are as good as him now, but still Eric is still the best. And, you know, he's, he's, there's nobody better and nobody more efficient, nobody more appropriate shaping, not over, you know, not one blade too many, not one, one blade too less. And uh, he kind of completed, you know, the team mm-hmm. and made, you know, kind of made that a team when, when Jim and I were still with the company and we had Eric and Brian and Brian and Don, that was a, we had a pretty good run. You know, Tom is still killing it with a good run with just the, when, you know, when Jim left and then eventually I left and those guys are still doing great work, like brilliant work. But it was kind of fun because back in those days we had three or four guys on a project at a time. So we all became great friends and the camaraderie and the creative process was really jacked up. And we all helped each other and critiqued each other and pushed each other and just had a ball. And um, Eric was a big part of it. But he was, you know, besides Brian Slonick, I think Eric kind of changed Renaissance as much as anybody um, in facilitating Tom's ideas. Like I said, Tom's idea, he's the first one to admit it to. His ideas have always been the same. They're really good. Uh, But it's just a matter of us, you know, underlaying the, the, you know, the, the house band behind him got better. Yeah. And that's why his projects got better. Well, um, real quick. Do you still do 
shaping on your projects now? Yeah, I shape all my own bunkers. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. I'm just a one one man band, and I just do my own shaping. You know, the the irony in the, in all of this is, you know, for decades, you people would read about to the extent they did read about architecture, <laughs> but they would hear about, you know, these, these architects, you know, like the Nicholas, the Fazio's, uh, and, and the, the Jones family and all that. And they never really, there wasn't a lot of information about how golf courses got built. And it was yeah. only, the irony is that it's, it was only with the so-called quote unquote minimalist movement when you, you know, when there wasn't allegedly that much construction being done that, the public really finds out about how golf courses are built because of these yeah. teams of shapers. You know, you, you mentioned Axlin and Proctor and, you know, yeah. Bill Core had the boys. And I remember yeah. in 2003, they were all, you know, Core Crenshaw and like three or four other guys were made the cover of Lynx magazine. I was like, you're putting shapers yeah. on the front of a magazine? And, and then we hear awesome. about Tom Dokes and, and, and you and, and Jim Urbina and, and Brian and Brian and, and Don and, and Eric and, and, now it's kind of like known that shapers are an elemental part of the of these great golf courses that are being built and yet it's only and it's all within this kind of minimal movement when not a lot of alleged construction is happening so there's it's a bit of a paradox there it is kind of funny but it's like it's you know i always think our peers are you know bill and ben uh david kidd uh gill obviously in his you know, Jim Wagner, he doesn't get enough credit, you know, right. the caveman over there. Mm-hmm. I always think it's, I, I always kind of, it's kind of funny. We're all, we're all like in the music and we're all play guitars and stuff like that. I correlate it back, back in the heydays when, you know, you had like the wrecking crew, you know, or you had the, you know, the funk brothers or things like, you, Absolutely. Had, you had house bands, you had Booker T and the MGs at the sun studios. And you had, you know, you had the a guy come in, but you had like the unbelievable backup band. And that's kind of what all these groups we've, we've, we've learned from each other. You know, we, we've learned from Corn Crenshaw more than anybody. And we've all kind of replicated our businesses after it, but they, you know, they had, you know, Jeff Bradley, you know, he was a big game changer because he was the guy that started building the cool bunkers. You know, I remember when Bill pulled me aside at one of the Renaissance cups and they were, he had a weather and Simpsons book you know, the pictures of, uh, you know, Simpson, those really frilly bunkers over in Paris or in France or in, mm-hmm. in Germany. He goes, I got a guy doing this. And it was at Cusco Willow. And I'm like, who is it? He goes, this guy, Jeff Bradley, this long haired drummer out of, <laughs> he brought, brought out of hot springs. Yep. And that changed the game. Cause all of a sudden, all right, we got to get our game going. And, you know, it started, I call it the bunker wars, you know, where everybody's building these cool bunkers. And Bradley was the first one to do it. You know, Dave and, Dave and Dan were doing it at the Sand Hills, um, but Bradley was specifying in that. And you know, now you got Cal France, you got all these guys doing that. Um, but you know, we were part of that arms race also when it came to bunkering. Um, you know, we were right behind him and doing cool bunkers and things like that. That that was part of the game. And you know, the minimalism is is not moving a lot, but still building cool features and building cool greens and bunkers. And that was part of that whole that whole race as we were all going and trying to get better and looking at their work. And that's, and that's why stream song was so much fun is that, you know, basically it's those three groups all on one on site and two of our groups were there at the same time. And we had lunch together with those guys, you know, Jimbo Wright, who was there basically the Eric Iverson of, uh, Corin Cronshaw, their best shaper. I had Eric Iverson shaping for us. They had Jeff Bradley doing their bunkers. I had Mike McCartan, who was one of my original interns at Ballyneal, 
who had honed his skill. And I said, all right, are you, are you ready to go toe to toe with Jeff Bradley? (laughs) He's like, he gulps. Yes, I guess so. You know, and, uh, you know, that was one of the coolest periods of our, all of our lives that we had such an amped up energy on that site. Um, you know, with Tom and Bill and Ben and then, uh, Keith Reb and I were like running the projects, but early on Dave Axel was there. And then I just kept rotating the talent through. I kept bringing the two Bryans in and, um, just kept up in the, up in the ante, just kept escalating. it It wasn't really competitive. It was just, um, you know, the owner tried to make it competitive between the two of us. I'm like, well, we've known these guys forever. And we had a lot of cross-pollination. Dan Proctor worked for me for a couple of projects. Heck, he was the first guy at Valenia with me uh, the first fall. Mm-hmm. So we knew those guys really well. So it wasn't, we weren't going to compete with them. We were just going to, it was mostly, where are they up to? Because we want to do something a little bit different. You know, we were building the big Royal Melbourne-like bunkers. And Bill's reaction to... Jeff was like, oh, we want to build a little smaller, more intimate bunkers on the red course versus ours, you know, because the land site was going to look pretty much the same. The landscape isn't going to look the same. How could he make his a little bit different than ours? We were trying to make our greens a little bit different than theirs. Theirs were kind of pushed up greens. Ours were laying on the ground more. So it was, it was a really cool creative process with, you know, the A teams of, of our generation were all on site at the one time. It was pretty cool. And then Gil had to follow, you know, behind us with the black horse and he felt the pressure of our work. He had, you know, he's looking across the water, seeing the lake and seeing our two courses. He had to have his game up too. And he had the, you know, the caveman group there and he was filtering through tons of talent. Ian Andrew was there at one time and you know, a lot of our old interns, Angela Moser and, and Cal France and Jaeger and those guys were all working on that project too with him. So, it's it's a fun competitiveness. If it is competitive, it's just more. I think it's more, just amped up creativeness. Yeah, I think historically we'll look back in fifty years at that stream song project and and glean a lot more. There's a book in there, I'm sure, somewhere just about the the day to day activities and and how those how that all fell into place. I know it's been talked about quite a bit, but it's just, it's a fascinating story. The co- coolest thing is that Rusty Mercer, um, who came from Cuscawilla, it was funny. Uh, we, we got the job. And they were asking us about our, uh, you know, Mosaic was asking about superintendents. And Rusty had called me a couple months early. He goes, like, I think I'm done here in Cuscoilla. I'd love to work on one of your projects. Once we inked the deal, I called Rusty. He goes, you're a day late. Bill called me yesterday. <laughs> and, you know, he was the only candidate. We heard Rusty Mercy was a brilliant superintendent, just a dear friend. And then Kyle Harris, who runs the blue and the red course now, was our intern on that project mm-hmm. who grew into with the superintendent and that, you know, post construction, they've taken that to a completely different level, you know, in the rough, in, in thinning out the, the Sandy areas where Kyle and, um, has kind of led that, but Rusty's, you know, prodding him along, but you know, that course has evolved so much. Um, just learning from uh, you know the evolution of the place that was able to be applied over at the Black Course. So there is definitely a book there, and it's a deep book because there's a lot of a, a, a cast of characters yeah. uh, behind the scenes that were all had their game, you know, their A game on. You know, when you're building a course next to Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw, you wake up with with a knot in your stomach every morning. <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> really? You know, you're yeah. like, 
I better better have a go, better have my game on today. Well, it's day to day, hour to hour, I guess. You know, it's different than you know if you know somebody's going to come and look at your course every every couple months or every couple weeks, but every day. Every day, you know, but that was that was the you know that was the juice we were living on. That was the high wire act working for Tom. Is like every day, you know, we we had Pacific Dunes has set a pretty high standards for us, and every course we built from that point on had that kind of energy that we were trying to build world class as best a golf course in the world as we possibly could at the time, and you know, we were just trying to keep up with Tom's. You know, Tom was our, you know, already wired for that. We were just trying to keep up with it mm-hmm. and yeah. keeping our skill right. level up. And I kept, wrote, you know, I've had a lot of guys, you know, my job basically run a project was roll the talent through, get everybody in the right space where they could be really creative and comfortable and uh, roll, roll in the guitar players. <laughs> you know, it was like I was bringing all the great session musicians in. And just roll yeah, like, the talent give us, in. Give us a lick here. Let's do a little riff over there. Kind of what it was, you know. Ballyneal was definitely that. We just I rolled so much talent through that it was scary, you know. But it was, it was fun, and and they were all good friends. And I bring a guy in for two weeks. I'm like, I need you to work on these two holes and see what you can do for me. I'll give you a couple. Of, you know, Tom would give me a couple of cues. I'd give him a couple of cue ideas and go, go do your best work. Don't worry about it. And we'll come in and edit it. And that, that was the cool creative process that Tom created. And we, we, we nurtured within our culture is like, don't fall in love with anything you just built, but make sure you built as good as you can, because somebody might come along and make it a little bit better. And that's, that was the process. And everybody was, you know, when you, when you, when you open people's minds and free them up to say, you're not going to do anything wrong. I just want you to do the best work you can. Here's a few ideas run with it be amazed what people can do you know when you're shaping you're trying to think when you're your self-conscious shaping and you're worried about what somebody's thinking about what you're doing you're not doing really good work but if you're just free flowing it and building something really really cool one of us is going to come along and ultimately tom's going to come along and do a couple tweaks and make it 10 times better yeah or or he might just say that's good you know so it was we would just roll talent, but I'd always lecture the talent, you know, open your mind, free yourself and give us your best shot and then move on because we're going to bring a few more bodies in and put a more, a couple more guitar licks on top of that. Yeah. So for, for what's considered by everybody to be another world class, you know, historically great course, Ballyneal almost seems underappreciated to me. It, you know, yeah, it, it doesn't get... It's it's loved and appreciated and it's ranked highly, but it, you just there's not a lot of conversation about it. But let's talk it's about Ballyneal because it's uh, to me my two favorite golf courses in the world are Pacific Dunes and Ballyneal, one A and one B. And yeah, I agree. Uh, what did you think when you first saw this site? I mean, you must have said like, "Oh my god, I can't believe we got another one of these. This is amazing." Yeah, it was because it was amazing to drive out there. You know, going through the flat flatlands of uh, northern, you know, northeastern Colorado, uh, big rolling land, and all of a sudden you get you come over the hill, and there's this they call them chop hills, you know, a deposit from the the glaciers, mm-hmm. and it's just this radical, rumped up sand dunes. You're just like, you gotta be kidding me. You yeah, know? it's not like sand hills where they're like you know jillions oh, yeah. of miles of this stuff. It's just like this yeah. one little pocket right there and outside Top of Holyoke. And the frequency of the dunes, you know, the sandals are very elegant dunes. Like the sine wave of the dunes is really long and elegant. Uh, Ballyneal is real choppy. It's, it's, and when I walked it, 
first with Tom and the and the you know bunch of us walking and the routing. I'm like, this is really really cool, but you could have a hundred blind shots, mm-hmm. you know, because the dunes, the pockets of the dunes, were like twenty feet deep or fifteen feet deep, and you you, you would. I kept thinking we're gonna melt this thing down because you could be running up and down hills just to see where your shot's gonna go all day long. So we. Um, that's when we decided we had to, I always called them melting the dunes down. We melted that golf course down a bit, the quieted a bit so you could have playable ground. Um, you know, the robbing was perfect by Tom as usual. And it really didn't, I didn't really, I knew it was going to be something really cool. Um, the ownership was struggling, you know, just pulling it together barely, you know, financially. So we didn't know if it was a solvent project or not. And I went out there the first fall by myself kind of staking the holes and one weekend i got i got a tractor i go we're not gonna i'm not gonna know what this thing is until i mow it so i got a, a big old farm high center of gravity farm tractor with a brush hog and over two days uh listening to an am radio in there i <laughs> mowed i mowed the golf course basically the golf corridors and it was just one of the coolest experiences of my life, you know, it's like feeling these contours come alive, you know, cause there was yucca and sage, which were two to three feet high. So you really couldn't see a lot of the micro contours and really get a sense of where the golf hole was until I mowed it. And it just, it just came alive and just, I knew I was, I was in something that was going to be the, one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. And we were building, uh, Sabonic was slated to be built at the same time. So we're splitting our crews up, and I, I knew we were we were going to be under the radar. Sabonic obviously is a high level, high profile between Shinnecock and the National, and and Jim Urbina was going to run that, and I was going to run Valley Neal, and we were just going to be, you know, that was going to be a big hard golf course, and we were going to build Valley Neals to be the funnest golf course we could ever build, and that was the mantra. We we didn't have any rules. <clears throat> I brought in Kai Golby. Like the first fall, I, it was me and Dan Proctor only there. And we were just kind of, I was mowing. We were melting some fairways down, just trying to get the sense of, uh, you know, we had to, we definitely had to melt some fairways down to actually make them golfable. Um, like the 17th fairway and the 13th fairway was a big dune in the middle of the 13th yeah. fairway. We had to blitz down and yep. create landing areas. So we, Dan and I did that the first winter, the first fall. And we didn't really, the ownership wasn't really, didn't have all their act together yet. So we were just kind of starting and seeing what we could do. And, but I knew we were under the radar where all the, as I always, always told Jim Ravina, you're out there hanging out with Spielberg and Seinfeld. I'm out here cow tipping, but we're going to do some pretty good work. <laughs> you know, you're out in the middle of Holyoke. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, but you know, the following spring, it was, it was the green line that went on. I brought Kai and Schneider in and, um, and then I brought um, probably the best, internship crew we ever had jonathan reister mike mccartan um ended up being going on for great careers with us we just had the great team um i would roll brian slonick in uh from time to time don Plasic would come in and shape from time to time time but we just um the energy was high we knew we were having a ball uh, we knew the golf course was just getting you know our, our goal was just make the coolest thing we could and we also had the Sandhills as a model. Um, so we spent a lot of time, Dick Young's kept Lesby up there a lot. But we wanted to make something different than them and learn from what they did. 
we spent a lot of time in our transition areas. The edges of the rough, where like the sand hills is kind of a, a hard cut line yeah. of rough. We transitioned, we, had, we call them scabs from Mackenzie, the scabby areas. We'd open sand pockets. So we wanted to blur the edge of our golf course into the native ground. So there wasn't a hard line. And then we also made sure we learned and keep the greenside bunkers away from the greens because, you know, you could see the wind would eddy them out and eat into the putting surface at the sand hills. So some of those bunkers had to get rebuilt. So we, we learned a lot from the sand hills. Um, not telling anyone out what, not what to do, but uh, we learned from what, how can we make ours different? And I think we did. And it's just, if you go, People rave about it if they've gone and played it because it is really one of the coolest places, one to hang out. Mm-hmm. Dave Hensley was is now the general manager, and John Kerlander is the owner. It was such a new vibe to the place. To stay at those facilities, there's nothing cooler. Um, and then to go play that golf course, it is just yeah. it's the perfect. It's the perfect match play golf course, and that's kind of what it was built for as match play. First, if, if you look at photographs of of Ballyneal, and then you look at photographs of Sand Hills, you know you would think, oh, they're very similar, and they're not. There's I a know. there's a completely different character to Sand Hills. You, you described the topography as elegant and long, and and it is, and there's just a, a different atmosphere there, and just the way the holes play. Mm-hmm. Ballyneal is more compact the holes are more compact it, down in the dunes it's intimate and the word i i always think of like the word joyous or jubilant or something there's yeah. something that's just you just the ball bounces more <laughs> it caroms more you know it funnels more it's just it's completely i could never imagine playing this any hole the same way twice you know they're just always going to get a different carom a different aspect a different wind a different pin it's going to roll differently it's just the most you said you wanted to build a fun golf course you did it's the it's probably yeah. the funnest golf course that i could think of it is you know it's all intended that way you know we just had that was the thought process and tom was in a good space and he's like you know he's he's out there with jack and somatic and making you know that but he come here and just have a ball and, and was creative and um, he knew we were, you know, I had set the tone. We had like, we had a couple houses in town. There wasn't much to do in Holyoke. So we, we just played dirt golf and goof around and we just had a fun atmosphere. Everybody had a ball. It was hard to build. It was hard conditions. You know, it's out there in hundred degrees temperature all day long, but we were pretty inspired. It was great sandy soil. Um, Dave Hensley ended up and the funny thing is Dave's the general manager who's one of the calmest coolest people you'll know you'll meet but he he ended up inheriting the superintendent he was the assistant superintendent and the original owner you know it, it fi- either fired the first one or fired the second superintendent before we started grassing we'd always had planned on using fescue find fescue out there so also one day um i go over to see dave and he's working on irrigation and i'm like well i guess you're it he goes i guess i am <laughs> you know you're you're the last man standing <laughs> he goes so what kind of grass are we going to put on this golf course? And because he, he was a, a Denver guy, which is you know Denver in the mountains is all bluegrass. Yeah, I go, we're going to use fine fescue. He's like, you got to be kidding me, <laughs> you know. But in turn, he turned out to be probably the foremost ex- ex- expert of fescue in the world. You know, he learned, and especially in a, in a severe setting like that, you know, it's a harsh setting to grow fine fescue. Um, and he turned out to be a great superintendent and actually then rolled into being a brilliant general manager. And his his demeanor 
and calmness sets the tone for the vibe for that place. And uh, it's another one of those, it's a perfect storm. It was the perfect project. You know, it, we, we, were bit, we were able to be below the radar uh, because, you know, high profile Sabonic was being built and we were just we were able to take chances and build something fun. It was a destination. <clears throat> it was very similar to Pacific Dunes where we, there wasn't a lot of pressure. We just had to make sure we didn't screw it up. And uh, I'm a member at Bally Neal now and, and uh, I love going back. It's just my favorite place to go back and play golf. Oh yeah. It's, it's another one of those courses when you play it, it tells a story and there, there are highs and lows and, and moments of tension and moments of relief. You know, and yeah. it just, it just, it's like an accordion. It expands and contracts and you're just like pulled along through the round and you come off in a really exciting hole and then you have a hole like, uh, like, 13 you mentioned which is just kind of a long hard hole and then you have another quirk sh- uh, fun little hole 14 around the bend and then a big par three down into a giant bowl behind a dune it's just there's something at every Great turn variety variety yeah. yeah but you also did you do the routing for the the second course there the upland course i did when you know, the, the past owner wanted to build a second course um and he was trying to say i just left tom was on my own and and he and I got along because I ran the project and I spent a lot of time out there and I still do consulting there. <clears throat> but uh, he asked, he, he didn't, he asked me if I wanted to do a routing. I'm like, I talked to Tom. He goes, yeah, go do it. You know, why not? And uh, so he did a routing and it was, it's a completely different golf course. I'd love to build it someday, but it didn't make sense at the time. You know, they were going under foreclosure. They didn't need another golf course. They needed more housing. And even Tom and John Curlander, I talked later, is like, well, you don't need a golf course. You need, you need to get your house in order. You need to get a solid membership. Um, you need to get more rooms to make the, the, the product work. And that's what they've done. Uh, if they ever build that course, yeah, I'd love to do it. But uh, it's out there. Wait, it's so where like, is it in relation to the current course? We got uh, – it's left of 18. Or it's left – yes, left of 18. So if you're playing, you know, if you're like, if you're on 18 green, look left and go out that way. Okay. So it's really calmer ground. And then it kind of wraps around behind 16 and behind 13 back in there. Uh, it's more, I, I called it the upland course because it was where Bally Neal is very valley oriented. You know, you're down always, you're low, um, you're in bowls where this, the way I route it is you're up high and you have views. Uh, the, the golf holes were more exposed the greens were exposed, so we were up on the golf hole, looking down at everything more than anything. Oh, so so you're kind of riding along the top <clears throat> of the land. Yeah, you, you were just. It was and the ground was, you know, wasn't so uh, bold and dooney too. You know, it was great ground. It's it's a it's a you know, I would love. I took Ron Witten out there, and he's like, man, we'd love to build this someday. <laughs> uh, but it's it's it was different. You know, it, it's it's one thing cool working about Tom working for Tom is they always try to go to go to the other direction that anybody else is going, and you know be inventive. So that routing I tried to be different than Bally Neal. Keep like that's why I call it the Upland Course. It was a higher. It it wasn't higher elevation. It was just there weren't dunes on the on the right and left of every hole. It was more open. The wind would definitely affect that hole. You know that course more than uh, Bally Neal. Yeah. Do you, how, I mean, I know you're very comfortable and, and very successful now that you've been out on your own and, and doing the kind of restoration and renovation projects, but do you, do new projects ever come across your desk or do you ever try to chase anything like that? No, because there's not that many and there's basically four guys vying for those. 
Bill Cord gets the, all of them. Gil's <laughs> starting to get the next group. Uh, and then Tom and David are fighting for the other ones. <laughs> and That's definitely uh, what it seems like. Yeah. So it's like, why bother? I just want to be, a, you know, I, I'm pre- I was pretty lucky. You know, I, I got to build some great golf courses. You know, they weren't on my name, but I got to be heavily involved in them. And I knew Stream Song was going to probably be was going to be my last project, and probably my, the last eighteen hole project I ever work on. Just knowing how the economy was going to go and, and the work work was going to go, so um, I had a good exit point building you know, the Blue Corsets Stream Song and got to build get Kidnappers and work you know pretty work on pretty much everything Tom built in that era. So I'm pretty comfortable. You know, I think if I got a project, it'd be cool to do my own just to see what I got. Um, but I know it would be like a sea level project. I, you know, I probably wouldn't get a great projects like we had for Tom. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty comfortable doing yeah, what I'm doing right now. Might be a little bit of a letdown. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm turning 60 this year, you know, I'm still act young. Um, so it's not like I'm in the downward slide, but, uh, being a 60 year old shaper, you got to keep yourself in shape and you got to get your rest. You know, back in the old days, we'd shape all day, go play golf and go hang out in the bar all night. Now I need to go back and rest my body. (laughs) Well, those sound like the good old days. That's still like, sounds like a good day to me. Oh, it's a really good day. There's no, but it's just, it's shifting a little bit and I'm up by myself. You know, we, we always had four or five guys to go out to dinner with every night and we'd have great conversations. So now I'm kind of running solo, but I, I like it. I, you know, I work five months a year and take the rest of the year off. So it's not a bad gig. And, I get to live in Traverse City, so I, I, I don't, I don't. As my wise words earlier were, don't take on too much work you can't service, and don't get greedy. So I'm not getting greedy and trying, you know, changing the world. I'm just working on one or two projects at a time and doing my best, and really enjoying being on site. Yeah, you definitely hit hit a stride, and you're you're right in the pocket there. Yeah, I like it. You know, it's like, and I. I, I love still being on site every day. I love working with young people. I work. I like working with contractors. I like the char- cast of characters that come with it. I like the intimacy of being on site pretty much every day, and uh, and controlling controlling everything I can. You know, especially the shaping part. You know, there's nothing worse than guiding somebody through something you know you can do. And with these, you know, with the new excavators not the new excavators, but the excavators we use now with the, the knuckle buckets, you know, you can, you can get a pretty good high skill level and you can be pretty fast at it. And you can, you can do anything you want with a, a good excavator with a, the knuckle buckets and a grading bucket uh, or knuckle wrist. So it's, it's fun. It's still creative. Uh, it's good work. It pays well. And uh, I get to go live like in February, I'm going to move to Nashville for three months. And have a, I'll have a place in downtown Nashville, so I get to go listen to music every night and build bunkers during the day. So uh, it's still a pretty good gig. Yeah, that's a that's a great gig. So uh, so and people are noticing too. So even though even though you you know you might feel like you're uh, you know not out there, but people notice your name yeah, is out of, there. Yeah, most of people most of the people in the business. You know, I'll go to the superintendent show or the PG show, and I know a ton of people because I've been in the business long enough and. People in the business know who I am and, you know, that I work for Tom and stuff, but it's, uh, the public doesn't know that much, but, and that's fine. Um, they're not the ones giving me the work. Clients are giving me the work. <laughs> so, right. uh, I'm, I'm more focused on clients and most of my work is word of mouth. I'm, I'm not, I, I still don't interview that much. Um, but a lot of jobs are, when I do go for a job, it's gotta be that right kind you know, Tim McQuan, I really wanted 
because I thought it was a great opportunity and I really went for it hard and I thought it'd be fun to work in Florida. And, um, so I went pretty hard at that and got it. Um, but I, I still don't get that many phone calls. It's amazing how many, how much work is out there. And I, I just don't, uh, uh, I'm not on the mainstream, the, the jet stream of the, the, the names, but, uh, within my group, I'm, I'm, I'm where I want to be. Well, I, it could change though, you know, and now that you're out in the media and doing podcasts, yeah, we'll see. You can ruin me. <laughs> so I've got to get you on the record. Um, yeah. what's, what's the best modern course that you've played that you were not involved building? Terra Edie in New Zealand. Okay. Far. That's a little bit of a cheat, but I'll, I'll guess I, I know <laughs> you already probably heard that. It is. It's it's that you know. I, I always thought the Sandhills was the standard for all of us in in America. It'll never be knocked off because it was the first one. Granted, Ballyneil and Pacific Dunes. You know, there's elements of it that might be better or or could give it a good run. Um, it's it's Muhammad Ali, and you're never going to knock it out, and it's rightfully so, and it, and it sets a standard for the rest of us. But around the world, you know, I think I think Terry was is just that good. And I'm ex- excited to see that Bill's going to build one down the coast, and Tom, I think, is going to build another one there. Um, um, it's just the talent level was so high. Uh, it was it was another one of those perfect storms. And to go play it, it was just so much fun. It, it's, it know, was – I'm sorry. times. It was Ballyneal times two in fun. Um, and the weather was nice. And, and <laughs> yeah, the ocean there, you know, all the elements that Ballyneal doesn't have – it was added into Terra Edie. I got you. Oh, sorry. Do you notice anything different, like with the architecture or the way the features are placed, the strategies that's a little bit different? At Terra Edie? Yes. Um, no, I think it's I think it's just Brian and the crew and Tom refining their ideas even to a more advanced level than they were back when we did Pacific Dunes. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know Pacific Dunes and Valley Hill still hold up. They're still you know the best courses that I know, you know, that I ever worked on. Um, Terry Eady uh, has a, another fun element that I'd never seen before where, where you know, or I've explained before where um, there's a lot of alternate shots there that they were intentional where you, you, you aim way left and watch it feed in the ground will feed it in. There's a lot of interesting, you know, straight four is a golf course. Um, I think it's just as good as the other, but it takes it to a different level by having all these fun, intricate, uh, alternate shots that these guys came up with that are just kind of kicks, you know, g- giggles for us to go hit shots at, but the finish work is, you know, is unbelievable. You know, we, we are always into kind of building free form tees, you know, like Ballyne, we there's no, t- there's actually no tees. There's just teeing ground. And Brian took that concept to a completely different level, even at Terry Eady that I was just blown away. These cascading tees coming down these dunes and, but, you know, a lot of it's the landscaping of it um, that kind of blew me away. But the golf was certainly a lot of fun. And um, my time down there, the five days I was there, I just had the time of my life. It was just so much fun. I should have asked you this question earlier in our conversation, but what's been the most rewarding restoration job that you've done? Or maybe the most comprehensive? I imagine it might be one of the, maybe it's something that you've really taken a, a worn out course and really pumped new life yeah. into it. I've, you know, it, it's kind of fun. The last, last, probably last five years, I've, had, you know, it takes a long time to restore a golf course. You know, I've been doing this for almost 30 years, and some of my clients I've had for 25 or 30 years, and it just, it's slow. It just takes forever to get people to do it. 
you know, it's hard to get the trees out. But all of a sudden, I had a bunch that just all came into finally fruition, like Blue Mound in, in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. That was just, you know, Tom rated it, I think, a zero <laughs> in the confidential guide. They had, <laughs> they had, they had one time, you know, it was a great rainer course, a city course. And um, somewhere in the 70s, somebody bought a blue spruce farm or something and decided to plant trees all over this golf course. And they were, there were a row of spruces along the right edge of the Redan hole up on the high ridge. Gosh, <laughs> you know, no. things like that. And I think in the confidential guide, Tom wrote, and it's not a direct quote, but he wrote the, the uh, he gave it a zero. And he said, the, the green committee should be lined up like the spruces on the edge of the Redan hole and shot or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> So they, they hired me, you know, 20 some odd years ago. And I'm like, I think I'll come over. You might not want me to come over. You know, you know who I work for. So it's been a slow process. And, and I finally got a couple of good people, um, good members in charge and said, we need, you know, they had a couple of other clubs say, you need to listen to Bruce. You know, you, you need to listen to him. And they finally did. And we we nailed it. It's really, really good. It's a, it's as pure rain or restoration as you'll find. And it, 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 I had to peel away a lot of layers and fight a lot of fights to get the trees out and get the bunkers right and expand the greens. That's one of my most proudest. Um, one of the coolest is Essex County Club in Massachusetts um, because it's come a long way, mainly because of the superintendent, Eric Richardson, when he was hired probably 10 years ago. Um, one of the top superintendents and the young superintendents. I mean, Brookline really wanted them bad to fill their space. But he's... That is one of the coolest Ross courses because he lived there. It was actually a Ross remodel. He remodeled an existing course. And Donald Ross actually lived there um, by the 13th green. And it's the most eclectic Ross course you'll see with a really eclectic set of bunkering, huge, massive kind of waste bunkering, and then some intimate stuff. A lot of character. And uh, every year I go back, we just wait. You know, we think we're done. We're not even close. And uh, it's just a work in progress, but it just keeps getting better and better. And it keeps climbing the rankings and the turf conditions by Eric are the best in the Northeast. He's the, the most wanted superintendent, but they, they keep them there. That's a great project. That's one. That's a great, you know, a lot of them have to do with superintendents, you know, the people I get to work with the Detroit golf club, you know, I grew up in Detroit. I've restored both courses. We're going to have the quick and loans event there this next year. But the South courses, the part 68 courses, one of the coolest, coolest little Ross courses and one of the toughest tests of power that you'll ever find. And it's always considered the women's course, you know, uh-huh. but it's the coolest course there. Um, so th- those are kind of places that, you know, I, I have a, a huge client list and it's hard to pick because um, they're all in various phases. Tim Aquana was real satisfying just to be down in Florida mm-hmm. um, to kind of resurrect it has great history. Tim McCoy was one of those clubs where people would go, I've heard of that. I hear it's a really cool Ross course, but I've never been there because it's Jacksonville. Yeah. You know, when you go to Florida, you're heading south. And so I'm, I'm pretty proud of what we've done on there. Alan, Alan Brown's the great superintendent there. Um, and he's done an unbelievable job turning that place around. And that is a great, great golf course now. And I, you know, I couldn't be prouder and happier how that's turned out. So Piper rock was great, obviously. Um, but I've, I could go down the whole list. They're all cool. You know, the, the cool thing, the best thing I like 
is I have the coolest client list and it's in by intention, but every club I work at is like one of those sleeper, quiet, cool golf courses, country club of Fairfield, Cape Arundel, Aquanic. They're not on people's mainstream, but when you go there, they're kind of like Bally. You know, you go there and I'm like, man, this place is cool. Yeah. You know, if you read one of the coolest, one of the best uh, re- reviews Ram Morissette ever wrote was about Cape Arundel last summer. And he really, you know, I always employ people to read that on Golf Club Atlas because he really got what we were doing there. It's it's under 6,000 yards. It's some of Travis's best greens. It's everything that's good about golf is there on that little property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, President Bush, the Bush, Bush families are members there. Dean Beeman's on a green committee. You know, so it's a pretty hidden club. Um, but it's, it's, if, if anybody has a chance to read, that's the best review he's ever done. Cause he really understood the golf there and what we're trying to do at restoring places. Cool. I'll put a link to that story on our, on the show notes page on the website for this podcast. Yeah, it's beautifully written by Rand. It's, uh, it, you know, everybody rate when he wrote it, everybody raved about it. But do you feel like, because you just mentioned that these, a lot of these clubs are kind of, you know, they're not publicity seeking clubs. They're there. I don't know that they're membership is small but they're you know they're they're not national brands so because they're not trying to protect some kind of national reputation or some kind of tournament heritage that they're more open to fo- putting their focus into what's best for the golf course is that your experience yeah and they're you know they're old kind of old yankee clubs you know old money doesn't like change they don't change they they're they're understated they're elegant uh, they're not showy and um, that's what their clubs are like so we're able to restore these back to what their grandparents grew up, you know, grew up on and they're, they're willing to do it. And, you know, they hired Rainer, they hired Travis, they hired Ross or whoever. Um, there's a reason they hired him because they, they had great taste, <laughs> you know, yeah. and <clears throat> they're kind of under the radar clubs, you know, the old, old kind of Yankee money of this country is not showy. You know, they're up in Maine, they summer up in Maine, you know, they're all wall street guys, but they don't flaunt their money. And their clubs don't flaunt it either. You know, they're just nice, elegant, old money clubs. And uh, they they keep their superintendents forever. And they keep their pros forever. And uh, I'm pretty lucky I get to work at a bunch of those places. Good. Now, let's bring this, as we close this down now, let's wrap this up. Let's bring this full circle. I'm going to ask you the question I asked Ian Andrew. Who is the most, in your view, the most underappreciated or non-publicized architect working? Who deserves more visibility let me think who i go look at you know, the problem is pay it forward i, I know um <clears throat> boy, it's gonna be a tough one um because I, I i tend to go i tend to go look at the current crenshaw gill i still think gill you know as much as gill is uh famous I think his courses are are underappreciated because nobody really has spent much time going to see his golf courses. You know, he's 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 on TV a lot. You know, he's the rising star. He did the Olympic Club and all that. But up until, you know, Stream Song, he really didn't you know, he didn't have the A-level projects. And some of his his cooler stuff is the stuff he was building early on. And it it sounds weird that he's the most underappreciated. Um, because he's probably gets more ink than anybody right now. Yeah. Um, but I don't think people, have, he gets all the ink cause he's him, you know, cause he is, he's the latest guy, but nobody's really gone and playing, played a lot of his golf courses. 
you know, he got he got most of his his jettison because of the Olympic course, and he certainly paralleled that, that into a, a you know a media career. <laughs> you know, you can't turn on the Golf Channel or something without uh, them talking about him, uh, and and rightfully so because he's a beautiful person and, and the most humble person you'll meet. But I I, I so that's kind of it's going to sound weird, but I think he's the most underappreciated because um, he has such a high high appearance right now but i don't think enough people have actually gone and seen his golf courses yeah it's it's like we haven't exhaled yet you know he started his hot streak five years ago or however long it's been it hasn't been that long and it's almost like we're still drawing in the breath and we haven't had a chance to really reflect on on the work that he's doing because he's still it's coming it's at us so fast so once at some point we'll get a chance to ah you know let it out and then pause and look around and say oh look at it look at a hoopy which is and actually go play and actually go play some of his new stuff yeah you know because a lot lot of his ink right now is his you know la country club and and piners number four that's great but you know you're still you're still just restoring somebody else's work but still not that original. But you know, we all want to go play his. I want. I want to play his. I want to play his stuff in the next five years because he's getting he's getting some great jobs coming up, and that's why I'm I'm really excited to go play his new stuff. That the, the new one in in uh, Georgia. I can't wait to go play. Yeah, that. the Hoopy Match Club. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go play. You know, because you know he's obviously from the Bill and the the Doak School. You know, from where we were all from. I want to see what he can do and and. Um, you know, stream song was really cool. It's a really good third sister, you know, to that, that program. So they're all on equal footing, but I kind of already, you know, I kind of knew what was going to happen there and I kind of knew what he would build. And it's really, it's really cool. It's different than ours, but you know, it's still kind of the same formula that we all built there. I want to go play some of his stuff coming up and see, I want to, you know, see him really hit a stride because he's, you know, him and Jim are just killing it. They're doing some really cool stuff. I think Gil, Gil takes, you know, more Jim takes more chances on architect, old architecture features, you know, the kind of the quirky stuff um, that you see at myopia haunt. If you see some of hit their stuff, it's real quirky, kind of lumpy, old, old architecture that, you know, we didn't do with Tom. We, we build old stuff, but not, that old ours is still kind of elegant and core built a few lumpy stuff there in the mid the mid career but gill gill and jim wagner took more chances on funky looking bunkers um you know funky old school feet turn of the century features than anybody so i'm really excited to see what he, he can come up with and uh yeah where where did you where did you see some of that stuff um it's like at boston or yeah, like Boston Golf Club, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And even when he did the TPC, you could see it's like you look at him like that is really cool. I don't know how to, I don't know how you can play a shot out of that, but that's <laughs> really cool. But it's 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 kind of stuff that you see um, in the old photos of the you know early 1900s. Um, that architecture was really kind of rudimentary, but it was really rumped up. Um, you know, the, the stuff he did at Castle Stewart. Um, with that kind of rev- chunky revetting, I know he, you know, yeah, like it's a combination well, of chunking and revetting in places. Yeah, you know, and that you, you, that's you know, if you ever saw Horace Hutchinson's book, uh, the British yeah, Golf Links, yeah. get those old photos. That's where he got that, you mm-hmm. know, and he's the only one doing it, which is so cool. To it was me. interesting. Like, yeah, and that was a while. Yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, I'm like, and he he's actually you know incorporating that in some of that in the stream song and all his new stuff. They're 
you know, Kern Crenshaw invented the chunkings, you know, where you go out and take a chunk of vegetation and shove it into a bunker face and all of a sudden it looks old. Right. Um, Gill has taken it to a different level and also thrown that, that, that kind of broken down revetting into it too. So I, you know, I'm excited for his future and, and his crew and he's, you know, the caveman, you know, crew, they're all, you know, half of those guys used to were our interns at one time and to see them all evolve and, get real crazy and, and, you know, build cool stuff. Um, it's exciting. I think the future of architecture is exciting. Um, you know, I might not be involved in it cause I'm just doing my little stuff over here on the side, but I'm a big fan. I just want people to do good work. I hate schlocky. I hate, I hate punch clock architecture and punch clock art golf courses. I like when people are pushing the limit and Doke is still, you know, he's still out there pushing it way ahead of everybody, doing a reversible golf course. And now, you know, at Sand, Sand Valley, right. you know, opposed to, you know, David's gigantic golf course, which is the most, you know, mammoth dunes is the correct word. That's the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then Tom's going to build this, you know, 68 or part 68. Yeah. You know, I mean, talk about a counterpunch. Talk about the, you know, the Pete Dye swing in the opposite direction. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where, that's where Tom learned it. You know, that's where, you know, Harbor town was a direct reaction to Robert Trent Jones and Thomas has, has learned that. And he's always gone. He's always had these things, you know, the reverse book off course, Tom always had in the back of his mind <clears throat> and we knew he'd pull it off. Eventually he just had to right, find the right guy and, and pulled it off. And it's one of the coolest things you ever play. And so Tom is still pushing. He's still out there ahead of everybody pushing the limit and going, different directions and doing cool stuff and he's still got a lot more tricks up his sleeve uh, but i'm excited for what gill's able to do well you know you mentioned gill and his media presence and he's really good at it i think you could have a future in media too this has been a good talk you, you could you could hold down your own and 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 be in in the media and do it get on television you're a good talker he's, he's a lot he's a lot prettier than me <laughs> <laughs> hey it's all in the eye of the beholder yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's uh, he's 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 exactly where he wants, wanted to be, and he does a great job. And I'm I'm a big fan of his. Well, let's cut it off there, Bruce. What a good talk! Great, substantial, I, I believe, it. and you did a great job. I really had fun. This is good. Yeah, it's good catching up with you. You're, you're talking to all the right people, all the people I like. You know, I, I saw you just interviewed Ron, and then Ian and and Dave, and, and those are all. I always think those are all my contemporaries, so I'm I'm glad to be just part of it. Well, I'm I'm glad that you could contribute that too. I've been, as you know, like we said, I've been trying to track you down for quite a while now. So thanks for doing this. Great, thanks. Always uh, good talking to you, and I appreciate the time. Okay, so Gil Hans is about the last person that most of us would probably pick to as the most underrated or underappreciated architect. You know, right now he's like the most visible architect in the world, but. Uh, Bruce, that's who Bruce went with, and he backed it up. He made a, a very good point that you know so much of Gill's work is still pretty fresh, and a lot of it isn't really available to the public right now, or it's too remote or private. Um, so we we don't really have our arms around uh, the quality of his architecture as a whole yet. So uh, interesting uh, choice there, but uh, I kind of see where he's coming from with that. Also very interesting to hear his perspective on the new jobs. You know, he he does restoration work. And even if he wasn't, he said, you know, there's only four architects basically right now that are getting all the good jobs. He said Bill Corr 
and Gail Hans get all the good jobs or the top jobs, and then uh, Tom Doak and David Kidd are scrambling for for whatever's left over, which I think is a really interesting perspective. I don't think a lot of architects would have a lot of sympathy for, say, Tom Doak not getting the jobs that he wants, but because he's still getting so many great jobs. But you know, I guess it's lonely at the top. Um, I'm not going to do a big wind down. We're going to wrap that up right here. It's been a long, uh, very meaty episode. That was uh, great to talk to Bruce. Thanks so much to him for coming on. Uh, quick reminder to follow me on, on social media. I'm at Feed the Ball on Twitter and Instagram. Go to feedtheball.com to check out past uh, archived episodes. You might have missed something there. There's a lot of good material out there that maybe you haven't explored yet. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. Thanks to you all for tuning in. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Bye.